Chapter 1 of The Old Coast Road from Boston to Plymouth by Agnes Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Dorchester Heights and the Old Coast Road. The very earliest of the great roads in New England was the Old Coast Road, connecting Boston with Plymouth, capitals of separate colonies. Do we, casually accepting the fruit of 300 years of toil on this continent, do we, accustomed to smooth highways and swift and easy transportation, realize the significance of such a road? A road is the symbol of the civilization which has produced it. The main passageway from the shore of the Yellow Sea to the capital of Korea, although it has been pressed for centuries immemorial by myriads of human feet, has never been more than a bridle path. On the other hand, wherever the great Roman Empire stepped, it engineered mighty thoroughfares, which are a marvel to this day. A road is the thread on which the beads of history are strung, the beads of peace as well as those of war. Thrilling as is the progress of aerial navigation with its infinite possibilities of human intercourse, yet surely, when the entire history of man is unrolled, the moment of the conception of building a wide and permanent road instead of merely using a trail will rank as equally dramatic. The first stone laid by the first Roman, they to whom the idea of road-building was original, will be recognized as significant as the quiver of the wings of the first airplane. Let us follow the old road from Boston to Plymouth. Follow it, not with undue exactitude, and rather too hastily, as is the modern way, but comfortably, as is also the modern way, picking up what bits of quaint lore and half-forgotten history we most easily may. I think that as we start down this historic highway we shall encounter, if our mood be the proper one in which to undertake such a journey, a curious procession coming down the years to meet us. We shall not call them ghosts, for they are not phantoms severed from earth, but rather the permanent possessors of the highway which they helped create. We shall meet the Indian first, running lightly on straight, moccasined feet along the trail from which he has burned from time to time the underbrush. He does not go by land when he can go by water, but in this case there are both land and water to meet, for many are the streams and they are unbridged as yet. With rhythmic lope, more beautiful than the stride of any civilized limbs, and with a sure divination of the best route, he chooses the trail which will ultimately be the highway of the vast army of pale faces. Speed on, O solitary Indian, to vanish down the narrow trail of your treading as you are destined in time, to vanish from the vision of New England. Behind the Red Runner plod two stern-faced pilgrims, pushing their way up from Plymouth toward the newer settlement at Massachusetts Bay. They come slowly and laboriously on foot, their guns cocked, eyes and ears alert, wading the streams without complaint or comment. They keep together, for no one is allowed to travel over this old coast road single, nor without some arms, though two or three together. The path they take follows almost exactly the trail of the Indians, seeking the fords, avoiding the morasses, clinging to the uplands and skirting the rough wooded heights. After them, almost a decade after, we see a man on horseback with his wife on a pillion behind him. They carry their own provisions and those for the beast, now and then dismounting to lead the horse over difficult ground, and now and then blazing a tree to help them in their return journey, mute testimony to the cruder senses of the white man, to whom woodcraft never becomes instinctive. The fact that this couple possesses a horse presages great changes in New England. 
ferries will be established, tolls levied, bridges thrown across the streams which now the horses swim, or crossed by having their front feet in one canoe ferry and their hind feet in another, the canoes being lashed together. As yet we see no vehicle of any kind, except an occasional sedan chair. The first one of these, of which we have knowledge, was presented to Governor Winthrop as a portion of a capture from a Spanish galleon. However, these are not common. In 1631, Governor Endicott of Salem wrote that he could not get to Boston to visit Governor Winthrop as he was not well enough to wade the streams. The next year, we read of Governor Winthrop surmounting the difficulty when he goes to visit Governor Bradford by being carried on the backs of Indians across the fords. It took him two days to make the journey. It is not strange that we see no wheeled vehicles. In 1672, there were only six stagecoaches in the whole of Great Britain, and they were the occasion of a pamphlet protesting that they encouraged too much travel. At this time, Boston had but one private coach. Although one swallow may not make a summer, one stagecoach marks the beginning of a new era. The age of walking and horseback riding approaches its end, gates and bars disappear, the crooked farm lanes are gradually straightened, and in come a motley procession of chaises, sulkies, and two-wheeled carts. Two-wheeled carts, not four. There are sleds and sleighs for winter, but the four-wheeled wagon was little used in New England until the turn of the century, and then they were emphatically objected to because of the wear and tear on the roads. In 1669, Boston enacted that all carts within ye neck of Boston shall be and go without shod wheels. This provision is entirely comprehensible when we remember that there was no idea of systematic road repair. No tax was imposed for keeping the roads in order, and at certain seasons of the year, every able-bodied man labored on the highways, bringing his own oxen, cart, and tools. But as the Old Coast Road, which made a public highway in 1639, becomes a genuine turnpike, so chartered in 1803, the good old coaching days are ushered in with the sound of a horn and the handsome equipages with well-groomed, well-harnessed horses ply swiftly back and forth, genial inns with swinging pictorial signboards, for many a traveler cannot read, spring up along the way and the post is installed. But even with fair roads and regular coaching service, New England, separated by her fixed topographical outlines, remains provincial. It is not until the coming of the railroad in the middle of the 19th century that the hills are overcome and she ceases to be an exclusively coastwide community and becomes an integral factor in the economic development of the whole United States. Thus then, from a thin thread of a trail, barely wide enough for one moccasined foot to step before the other, to a broad, leveled thoroughfare, so wide that three or even four automobiles may ride abreast, and so clean that at the end of an all-day's journey one's face is hardly dusty, does the history of the old coast road unroll itself. We who contemplate making the trip ensconced in the upholstered comfort of a machine rolling on air-filled tires will, perhaps, be less petulant of some strip of roughened macadam, less bewildered by the characteristic windings if we recall something of the first back-breaking cart that, not so very long ago, crashed over the stony road and toilsomely worked its way from devious lane to lane. Before we start down the old coast road, it may be enlightening to get a bird's-eye glimpse of it actually as we have it historically, 
and for such a glimpse there is no better place than on the topmost balcony of the Soldiers' Monument on Dorchester Heights. The trip to Dorchester Heights in South Boston is through whatever environs one approaches it, far from attractive. This section of the city, endowed with extraordinary natural beauty and advantage of both land and water, irrevocably and brilliantly graven upon the annals of American history, has been allowed to lose its ancient prestige and to sink low indeed in the social scale. Nevertheless, it is to Dorchester Heights that we, as travelers down the old coast road and as skimmers over the quickly turning pages of our early New England history, must go. And having once arrived at that lovely green eminence, whitely pointed with a marble shaft of quite unusual excellence, we must grieve once more that this truly glorious spot, with its unparalleled view, far down the many islanded harbor to the east and far over the famous city to the west, is not more frequented, more enjoyed, more honored. If you find your way up the hill, into the monument, and up the stairs out to the balcony, probably you will encounter no other tourist. Only when you reach the top and emerge into the blue upper air will you meet those friendly winged visitors who frequent all spires. St. Mark's in Venice are the Soldiers' Monument in South Boston. The pigeons, yes, the pigeons have discovered the charm of this lofty loveliness, and whenever the caretaker turns away his vigilant eye, they haste to build their nests on balcony or stair. They alone of Boston's residents enjoy to the full that of which too many Bostonians ignore the existence. Will you read the inscriptions first and recall the events which have raised this special hill to an historic eminence equal to its topographical one? Or will you look out first on all sides and see the harbor, the city, and country as it is today? Both surveys will be brief. Perhaps we will begin with the latter. Before us to the wide east lies Boston Harbor, decked with islands so various, so fascinating in contour and legend that more than one volume has been written about them and not yet an adequate one. From the point of view of history, these islands are pulsating with life. From Castle Island, on the left, which was selected as far back as 1634 to be a bulwark of the port, and which, with its Fort Independence, was where many of our Civil War soldiers received their training, to the outlines of Squantum, on the right, where in October 1917 there lay a marsh, and where, ten months later, the destroyer Delphi was launched from a shipyard that was a miracle of modern engineering. Every mile of visible land is instinct with wartime association. But history is more than battles and forts and the paraphernalia of war. History is economic development as well. And from this same balcony we can pick out Thompson's, Rainsford, and Deer Island, set aside for huge corrective institutions, a graphic example of a nation's progress in its treatment of the wayward and weak. But if history is more than wars, it is also more than institutions. If it is the record of man's daily life, the pleasures he works for, then again we are standing in an unparalleled spot to look down upon its present-day manifestations. From City Point with its aquarium, from the Marine Park with its long pleasure pier, to Nantasket with its flawless beach, this is the summer playground of unnumbered hosts. Boaters, bathers, picnickers all find their way here, where not only the cool breezes sweep their city-heated cheeks, but the forever bewitching passage of vessels in and out furnishes endless entertainment. 
They know well these laughing pleasure-seekers crowding the piers and boats and wharves and beaches where to come for refreshment, and now and then in the history of the harbor a solitary individual has taken advantage of the romantic charm which is the unique heritage of every island and has built his home and lived at least some portion of his days upon one. Apple Island, that most perfectly shaped little fleck of land of ten acres, was the home of a Mr. March, an Englishman who settled there with his family and lived there happily until his death, being buried at last upon its western slope. The fine old elms which adorned it are gone now, as have the fine old associations. No one followed Mr. March's example, and Apple Island is now merely another excursion point. On Calf Island, another ten-acre fragment, one of America's popular actresses, Julia Arthur, has her home. Thus, here and there, one stumbles upon individuals or small communities who have chosen to live out in the harbor, but one cannot help wondering how such beauty spots have escaped being more loved and lived upon by men and women who recognize the romantic lure which only an island can possess. Of course, the advantage of these positions has been utilized, if not for dwellings. Government buildings, warehouses, and the great sewerage plant all find convenient foothold here. The excursioners have ferreted out whatever beaches and groves there may be. One need not regret that the harbor is not appreciated, but only that it has not been developed along aesthetic as well as useful lines. We have been looking at the east, which is a harbor view. If we look to the west, we see the city of Boston, the white tower of the Custom House, the gold dome of the State House, the sheds of the Great Cell Station, the blue line of the Charles River. Here is the place to come if one would see a living map of the city and its environs. Standing here, we realize how truly Boston is a maritime city, and standing here, we also realize how it is that Dorchester Heights won its fame. It was in the winter of 1776 when the British, under Lord Howe, were occupying Boston and had fortified every place which seemed important. By some curious oversight, which seems incredible to us as we actually stand upon the top of this conspicuous hill, they forgot this spot. When Washington saw what they had not seen, how this unique position commanded both the city and the harbor, he knew that his opportunity had come. He had no adequate cannon or siege guns, and the story of how Henry Knox, afterward General Knox, obtained these from Ticonderoga and brought them on in the face of terrific difficulties of weather and terrain is one that for bravery and brains will never fail to thrill. On the night of March 4th, the Americans, keeping up a cannonading to throw the British off guard and to cover up the sound of the moving, managed to get 2,000 Continental troops and 400 carts of fascines and entrenching tools up on the hill. That same night, with the aid of moonlight, they threw up two redoubts, performing a task which, as Lord Howe exclaimed in dismay the following morning, was more in one night than my whole army could have done in a month. The occupation of the heights was a magnificent coup. The moment the British saw what had been done, they realized that they had lost the fight. However, Lord Percy hurried to make an attack, but the weather made it impossible, and by the time the weather cleared, the Americans were so strongly entrenched that it was futile to attack. Washington, although having been granted permission by Congress to attack Boston, wished to save the loyal city if possible. Therefore, he and Howe made an agreement by which Howe was to evacuate and Washington was to refrain from using his guns. 
After almost two weeks of preparation for departure, on March 17th, the British fleet, as the gilded letters on the white marble panel tell us, in the words of Charles W. Eliot, carrying 11,000 effective men and 1,000 refugees, dropped down to Nantasket Roads, and thenceforth Boston was free. A strong British force had been expelled from one of the United American colonies. The white marble panel, with its gold letters and the other inscriptions on the hill, tell the whole story to whoever cares to read, only omitting to mention that the thousand self-condemned Boston refugees who sailed away with the British fleet were bound for Halifax, and that was the beginning of the opprobrious term, go to Halifax. That the battle was won without bloodshed in no way minimizes the verdict of history that no single event had a greater general effect on the course of the war than the expulsion of the British from the New England capital. And surely this same verdict justifies the perpetual distinction of this unique and beautiful hill. This, then, is the story of Dorchester Heights, a story whose glory will wax rather than wane in the years and centuries to come. Let us be glad that out of the reek of the modern city congestion, this green hill has been preserved and this white marble monument erected. Perhaps you will see it now with different, more sympathetic eyes than when you first looked out from the balcony platform. Before us lies the water with its multifarious islands, bays, promontories, and coves, some of which we shall now explore. Behind us lies the city, which we shall now leave. The old coast road, the oldest in New England, winds from Boston to Plymouth, along yonder southern horizon. More history than one person can pleasantly relate or one can comfortably listen to lies packed along this ancient turnpike, incidents closer set than the tombs along the Appian Way. We will not try to hear them all. Neither will we follow the original road too closely, for we seek the beautiful pleasure drive of today more than the historic highway of long ago. Boston was made the capital of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. Plymouth was the capital a decade before. It is to Plymouth that we now set out. End of chapter 1